So the title of um, tonight's talk, I wanted to um, develop a theme that that was uh, in line with um, our intentions for the retreat. So the title of the talk tonight is On the Path Towards the Beloved Community. And there's this um, Zen story that some of you may have, may be familiar with of this um, very violent warrior general um, who was conquering the countryside and and killing scores and hundreds of people and in order to um, uh, uh, own the land. And he came upon the temple of a Zen master and was going to destroy the temple and all of its uh, residents. And he burst into the temple and sitting perfectly still, as if nothing was happening, was the master totally calm and composed with complete poise. And the warrior general who had burst into the room said, do you realize that I am the kind of person who can run my sword through you without batting an eye? And without missing a breath, the Zen master replied, and do you realize I'm the kind of person who can sit here while you run your sword through me without batting an eye. And in that moment, the warrior general realized what he didn't have, no matter how much he were to conquer, you know, the world. And the story is, is that he ordained with this master. And by that process of spiritual transformation, Clearly, he wasn't ravaging the countryside anymore and created a lot more peace in his world. And that's an archetype story, right? It's not about the literalness of it. But it's, a, it's pointing to the direct connection between the relationship of your personal practice of change and the practice of social transformation. That there is a relationship between the experience that we have directly in this room with the experience that we have outside of this room as we walk in our everyday lives. Creating awareness is not just about our internal experience. It is also about our external lives. Because you may think that meditating is for creating peace in our minds, or opening your heart, or creating stillness. You may think that the meditation practice is about creating awareness and mindfulness so that you can choose what leads to more suffering. You can choose what leads to more happiness. And you may feel that the meditation practice is even about insight, about how to live your life wisely. (coughs) But there is something additional that is happening, which I believe is what the Buddha intended. Connecting this personal practice of mindfulness 
into a collective form of awareness that has the power to change the world. This is a very famous passage from Dr. Martin Luther King. Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require the qualitative change in our souls as well as the quantitative change in our lives. The qualitative change in our souls, that is the internal practice. And the quantitative change in our lives, that is the external practice. We get the impression that our own awakening is dependent upon our own efforts, on our own breath, on our ability to concentrate, the awareness of our own experience, noticing the physical sensations. But within the Buddha's teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the foundations of mindfulness that some of you who have been on retreats are aware of, in that discourse, this passage is really clearly demarked. The noble ones who abide contemplating internally, they abide contemplating externally. They abide contemplating both internally and externally. Being aware of both our internal and external experiences, being aware of our experience as we walk in the world and also how we impact others in the world. This is an internal reflection, understanding what is arising in our own experience around our own habitual conditioning and reactivity on a moment-to-moment basis. And it is the external reflection of What is my impact on the world? How am I with others and the environment around me? Awareness that is applied only internally can lead to a a self-awareness that also has a self-centeredness to it. It's another kind of creation of self, of ego. One can be preoccupied with one's own experience at the expense of not being aware of the experience of others and one's own impact on others. We're actually really good at this in our culture because we're so individualistic. We don't have that collective, um, expansive awareness. So there's this rather painful story, um, but ironic in a way that um, there's, there was a, and this is a true story, that um, there was a meditation center in, there is a meditation center in an urban area. No, there was a meditation center in an urban area. And the practice that they did was this very expansive practice of, of um, ever-present awareness, you know, developing exercises and, and um, uh, deep, very deep, week-long retreats that create um, this, this, um, this taste of 
this universal sense of energy and, and awareness of, of, of life. Now, it's an urban meditation center with 50 people coming in for a retreat. So what would you think one of the issues might arise in an urban meditation center? And it was parking. And so 50 cars arrive for a retreat. And there is a tremendous impact on the neighborhood. And this is, you know, this does not happen just once. And so during this retreat, um, in this expansive practice, which is quite transformative, um, the, the neighboring businesses and community were so charged, triggered, that within that seven days, they got the city to revoke the lease of the meditation center. And they had to move as soon as the retreat was over. The internal practice has got to be rooted in how we walk in the world. Internally and externally means that the experience as we live into this internal and external awareness, that the experience doesn't belong to me and it doesn't belong to anyone else. It doesn't become my experience. It doesn't become your experience. It becomes our experience. This both and, this this impact of my life on yours and yours on mine. And this is the initial point of bringing your personal practice into a social awareness. So, um, uh, in a in a culture that's infused with the Dharma, um, I was uh, in a conference. This is going to date me a little bit, but I was in a conference in Tokyo um, uh, when Bruce Springsteen was uh, doing his Born in the USA tour. So that dates me. But I happened to get tickets to his concert, and. Um, and the concert was uh, uh, in the 1960 um, um, stadium, Olympic Stadium, which is this 22,000-person stadium. And uh, what was so curious about the concert was that um, there was a person who got up um, before the performance and said, um, please do not stand in the seats. Please do not you know, roam in the aisles during the concert, and please don't do anything to embarrass us in front of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Okay, I thought that was interesting. So the, con- the, the concert went on, and it was a fabulous concert, and it was over, and I was with someone. Um, and so the concert was over, and nobody was moving. And so, uh, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. And somebody was talking in Japanese, which I don't speak. And so we're just sitting there and we were thinking maybe there's a, another act coming or, 
And then we realize that the stadium was exiting row by row. (laughs) There was a collective consciousness there. Okay, fast forward to last summer. Uh, My husband, Stephen, loves George Michael. He's, uh, you know, um, uh, disco is one of the gay um, spiritual practices, (laughs) regardless of, (laughs) regardless of time. So we went to the HP Pavilion in San Jose to see George Michael. And we actually left halfway through the concert because people were standing in the chairs. They were <laughs> all over the aisles. And we were, we were seated on risers and the vibration of people's energies was so uh, scary. You know, we thought the whole thing would collapse. <laughs> and at intermission, when, when people got up to leave, it was not exiting row by row. <laughs> Are we as aware in a collective culture, in a society, as we are aware as individuals? Western psychology has these terms, groupthink, herd behavior, you know, with the extremes being mob mentality. Jung has the conceptualization of the collective unconscious. But actually, you know, his conceptualization of the collective unconscious points to the fact that the possibility is that the collective can become conscious. Awakening on a communal and collective level is what I believe the Buddha was really referring to when he invites us into the practice of Sangha, of community. The outcome of this practice is a force that we might call the evolution of the human condition. It is living into the experience of the universal family. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. It's just meeting the moment for what it is in acceptance. And in meeting that moment without pushing it away or wanting more of it is the experience of loving kindness. Paying, we talk about paying attention and it doesn't matter if you have, you have children in your life. All of us have been children. And we know that paying attention is our experience of love. When I give this Dharma talk and I'm looking somewhere else or texting my Blackberry, you're going to have a completely different experience. Our ability to pay attention to our world is our ability to have an open heart to anything that arises. 
and someone was asking about politics in the groups today. This is so relevant to social justice and politics. Che Guerrero says, let me say at the risk of seeming ridiculous that the true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. There is no social action that is truly effective without your open heart. The invitation of the external awareness practice is to extend this kind of kind attention, the kindness of your attention, to offer love to the diverse multiplicity of your social environment. And in this day and age, that means a totally multicultural environment. What our practice is inviting us into is a multicultural awareness on not a conceptual level. It's a multicultural sati. It's an experience. So when you have some space in your practice, in the, in your, in your external world, as you leave the retreat, allow your practice to expand into whatever group or community that you find yourself. Some of you know, are familiar about the foundations of mindfulness, about the, the mindfulness of the body, about Vedana, which is the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral sensations that we experience, about thoughts and emotions. How does this community feel in the body? Just being present with it in your body and energetically. How does the Vedana feel of the group, which means what are the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that arise without needing to understand or judge them. In another way, it could be looking at what is the light and the shadow of this community. All communities have that. There is no one community that lives in the 10,000 joys. This life is created by 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. That is the lived reality. So being able to expand our awareness of our communities to notice all of that. What are the collective mental formations of the community? Sometimes this is uh, about the assumptions or the, the, the guidelines or the norms that make up the culture of the group. Embedded in these teachings is an invitation for us to shift to a more comprehensive practice. From the internal to the external, from the individual to the collective, the non-identification of the personal with the connection with a greater whole. But this Invitation is not just embedded in the uh, teachings on mindfulness. It is embedded in every teaching of the Buddha. 
So I'm just going to give you a few examples. The practice of generosity. The practice of dana, which usually, you know, occurs at the end of some kind of dharma event. That's not the point of the, the teaching of basically a very different economy that the Buddha is offering. That it is actually not about an exchange or a market economy, but an economy of gift. That it is an economy of meeting the needs of everyone, of each other, as opposed to just meeting the needs of ourselves or our closest circle. In the, in, in the practice of dana, there's an assumption that everything circulates. That, that every, that, that resources are just energy. And whatever you're freely able to offer will be returned. The market economy competes. It's about competition. And competition does not develop a relationship. The economy of gift is about cooperation. And in that, there is the development of community and relationship. The patrons sit at a communal log table and each finds before their plate a modest bottle of wine. Before the meal begins, a person will pour their wine, not into their own glass, but into their neighbor's. And their neighbor will return the gesture, filling the first person's empty glass. In an economic sense, nothing has happened. No one has any more wine than they did to begin with. But a loving community has appeared where there was none before. The beautiful sort of invitation and instructions that Shahara gave around eating meditation. Eating meditation is not simply noticing sort of the sensory experience of food, which we usually ignore and take for granted. But if you notice in the contemplation, one of the contemplations was about eating in moderation. The traditional wording of this moderation is to invite you to eat five bites from full. How do you do that? You can only do that with your awareness. Eating five bites from full means that you're going to live, right? You're not going to starve. So it's really about exploring what you need versus what you want. There's this cartoon, you know, there's this big store like Walmart that has this big thing, wants, and then the tiny little side door is the needs. Completely like obscured. Because we just, we just do what we want and we think that that's freedom. To do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want to do it with. What if we not only ate five bites from full, but bought our clothes five bites from full. 
or used our gasoline five bites from full? What would our culture, what would our community look like if we took this practice onto a collective level? Which is what the Buddha did when he created the monastic container. He created that community as a laboratory and an example for the rest of the world to learn from. And the deep wisdom that is that that transcends any spiritual tradition, that is common to any spiritual lineage, and that is the teaching on interdependence. Suzuki Roshi, the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, says, strictly speaking, there are no separate individual experiences. There are just many names for one existence. Some people put stress on oneness, but this is not our understanding. We do not emphasize any point in particular, even oneness. Oneness is valuable, but variety is also wonderful. Ignoring variety, people emphasize one absolute existence, and that is one-sided understanding. In this understanding, there's a gap between variety and oneness. But oneness and variety are the same thing. So oneness should be appreciated in each different existence. There is a connection between the universality of our experience and the individuality of our experience through this interdependence. Eldridge Cleaver says, the price of hating other human beings is loving oneself less. We are that closely connected. Julie shared this passage from Dr. King with me that speaks exactly to this teaching. All this tells us something basic about the interdependence of people and nations. Whether we realize it or not, we are everlasting debtors to known and unknown men and women. We do not finish breakfast without being dependent on nearly half the world. When we rise in the morning, we go to the bathroom where we reach for a sponge that is provided to us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for soap that was created by a Frenchman, a towel provided by a Turk. Then at the table, we drink coffee, which is provided to us by a South African, or tea by a Chinese, or cocoa by a West African. Before we leave our, for our jobs, we are beholden to nearly half the world. In a real sense, all life is interrelated. All are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I and what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Our 
our practice individually and collectively is inextricably interwoven and we take this for granted, we forget. So just like coming back to the breath, waking up and not taking this for granted. We talked about earlier how this retreat took a lot of energy and years to create. this retreat didn't just simply appear because we thought it was a good idea. But why did it take 20 years? Seems like a long time. Because when the awareness is not there, there is unconsciousness. And that happens to be the case for the collective too. And just as your path is an incremental path to awakening, You don't just like, unless you're the Buddha, you don't, and the Buddha didn't do this either. He didn't just sit down and wake up. It took him six years. You sit down, you may have some insights, but it's a process of unfolding uh, openness, practice, and this is what happens on a collective level too. So we had the initial advocacy for diversity by individuals in the early 90s. Then the creation of the Spirit Rock Diversity Council in 1998. And then the, the arising of the POC uh, residential retreats in 1999 and the day-long programming. And then the work done by the different community Dharma leader training programs to develop leaders at the time there were no leaders of color sharing the Dharma. How can, how can you create this container without the multicultural container being multicultural? And now we have people of color in the formal retreat teacher training program. This room this experience is standing on the shoulders of dozens, if not hundreds, of dedicated practitioners whose efforts were required to make this happen. Just feel that and appreciate that. And just like in the larger culture, There is a far distance yet to go. But there have been transformations that have already taken place. And to be aware of that so that it's a foundation to go further. We are actually living change right now. This is the practice of the beloved community, a community that intends to leave no one behind and who exerts energy, continuing energy, towards manifesting and living into that intention. 
And none of this is separate or independent of each other as the Dharma moves into the West. So this retreat is dependent on all the experiences of the culturally specific retreats that have occurred, the the people of color retreats, the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender retreats, the women's retreats. The intention of these culturally specific retreats never was to create a permanent separation between communities, but rather these communities have the same needs that mainstream communities have. And I say this because before these larger mainstream meditation communities were formed, there were and are multiple, hundreds of Dharma practice centers that were developed by Asian communities since the 1850s at least. Chinese, Japanese, Tibetan. The first Thai temple was in 1965 in in Washington, D.C. So it's interesting that when many of our Western teachers went to Asia and had amazing, enlightening experience and came back, they chose not to create their communities within the existing temples in North America. Why? I suspect because the mainstream culture didn't see their lives reflected in these temples. They didn't hear their life stories in the way that the teachings were languaged. They didn't experience the Dharma relevant to where they were at. So the mainstream cultures created sanghas that were centered around their own particular life experiences, exactly for the same reasons that diverse communities need their practice spaces. Make no mistake, IMS, Spirit Rock, were created by a specific collective cultural thirst for the teachings of liberation. Not unlike why the people of color retreats were formed. This is the larger cultural experience of the Dharma. Because regardless of our cultural differences, we are the same. We respond in the same way to cultural differences. We all create sanghas and communities based on issues of identity for safety, to be seen, to create that place that we can relax into. Even in our differences, we experience those differences in the same way. And that's our deepest connection. We are so much more than who we think we are as individuals. We are also so much more than who we think we are as communities. Eventually, the Dharma invites 
the deepest intention from all communities to be able to practice anywhere with anyone under any circumstance and to live into that question, who are we? What kind of liberation would that look like? This is a piece of that journey in this room. Don't take it for granted. It is precious. And if you have any doubts that the Dharma is about culture, this um, is a passage in the Vinaya, which is the monastic code. It's the um, it's the guidelines that the Buddha put down in order to create community. And this is a beautiful passage, actually. On the occasion, the occasion was this. There were two monks. They were of Brahmin stock, which is sort of the aristocracy of the day. And they had fine voices and a fine delivery. They asked the Blessed One, Lord, Now the monks are of various names, of various races, variously born, having gone forth from various clans. They spoil the word of the Blessed One by using their own language. Let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter. I love the Buddha's response. The Buddha, the Blessed One, rebuked them, misguided them, How can you say, let us render the words of the Buddha into classical meter? This will not rouse faith in the faithless, nor increase faith in the faithful. Rather, it will keep the faithless without faith and harm some of the faithful. Having rebuked them and given a talk on the Dharma, he addressed the monks thus, Noble ones, the word of the Buddha is not to be rendered into classical meter. Whoever does so commits an offense of wrongdoing. I allow the words of the Buddha to be learnt in one's own language. That may not seem like much today, but look at the social cultural reality of his time. There was no such thing as a transcultural language, a language that that encompassed multiple cultures. Language actually defined culture. Each local geographic culture had its own language because it was before written, the written word. How will the teachings of liberation, the Dharma, look, look in each of our multicultural communities. We actually have yet to know. But we can have the intention to sow the seeds so that this precious fruit can be harvested by any community at any time.
one of the sisters in the POC retreat a few years ago in Tallahassee, took the metta practice that she learned in this room. Um, And for one of the uh, Juneteenth celebrations, um, invited and collected a group of people to do metta practice under the trees in which men were lynched. And after she did that ritual, uh, she invited me to do a day-long. And the day-longs, we worked on on the subject. And, and so the title that we came up with was Compassionate Transformation, Healing the Legacy of Slavery. How will the Dharma look in each of our multicultural communities? We don't know yet. But it has the possibility of this aspect of freedom that is available to all of us, regardless of culture. And you are like the spokes of a wheel. You will radiate out into all of your communities. And the practice that you do here will necessarily affect the people around you. You will bring it into those communities wherever you go. There was a um, uh, Chicana uh, um, practitioner that uh, is in the Commit to Dharma class at East Bay Meditation Center. And uh, we were having a conversation in the group and she said, as a Chicana psychotherapist, um, when we talk about self in the Western psychology, in her cultures, it's not about an individual experience. It's about self, that a connected self to family and clan. And there are more individuals connected with that experience of self. How do we language the teachings of non-self and anatta in that cultural context? That has yet to be done, but it is so possible. Our purpose in practice is about personal transformation, and our purpose is also to live in a truly interconnected, an interdependent world. And it takes effort. It takes a lot of effort. It took lifetimes to elect a president of color. And there is so much more transformation that needs to happen beyond that. so much progress has also been made. This kind of change we cannot think our way into. We cannot merely say it should be this way. We need to be able to walk our intentions and live our practice. 
Our goal is to create a beloved community, and this will require a qualitative change in our souls as well as a quantitative change in our lives. Sayadaw Upandita, who is one of the Burmese meditation masters, the, the teacher of many of our Western teachers, says, practicing mindfulness meaning means building peaceful little worlds within each of those who practice. Without peace in our little worlds, crying out for peace in the big world with clenched fists and raised arms is something to think about. That's just another way of saying the connection between your personal practice and the collective experience is so close. Thich Nhat Hanh says, we have to be the peace that we see for the world. The beloved community does not arise because we want it to, or because we feel we deserve it, or because we feel entitled to it. It is built from the ground up, asking for the blessing of the Earth Mother, then laying the foundation, (coughs) brick by brick, plank by plank. These are words by Frederick Douglass. Let me give you a word on the philosophy of reform. The whole history of progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born out of earnest struggle. It must do this or it does nothing. For if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and deprecate agitation are people who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Freedom is dependent on our personal practice that fuels the possibility of social transformation. Paying attention and being mindful together, internally and externally. Our collective multicultural sati is our ability to be able to love our communities. And about love, Toni Morrison writes, You do not deserve love regardless of the suffering you have endured. You do not deserve love because somebody did you wrong. You do not deserve love just because you want it. You can only earn by practice and careful contemplation the right to express it. And you have to learn how to accept it. Which is to say you have to earn God. You have to practice God. You have to think God carefully. And if you are a good and diligent student, you may secure the right to show love. Love is not a gift. It is a diploma. A diploma conferring certain privileges of expressing love and the privilege of receiving it. How do you know you've graduated? You don't. What you do know is that you're human, 
and that you're educatable and therefore capable of learning how to learn and therefore interesting to God who is interested only in himself, which is to say he is only interested in love. He is only interested in love. As we are on the path towards a beloved community. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.